HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by EscapeMaker.com. Visit a farm. Escape through the net. Visit EscapeMaker.com for more. I'm Michael Lameco from Food Talk. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. We are coming to you, as always, from the back of Roberta's Pizza here in Bushwick, Brooklyn. And you're, of course, listening to The Farm Report. I'm your host, Erin Fairbanks. On air, every week on The Farm Report, we talk about the ins and outs of food production, what we're thinking about, what we should be thinking about, and more. Off air, I'm the executive director of the Heritage Radio Network. Today, I find myself asking, could the avian influenza actually be a good thing for small-scale poultry producers? And and what might this mean eventually for consumers like me and like you? We are joined on the line by Megan Filbert. Megan is the Livestock Coordinator for the Practical Farmers of Iowa. Megan, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Erin. So Practical Farmers of Iowa, it sounds very solid, Midwestern uh, farmers organization. Maybe give us a little bit of a sense of of the scope of your organization and who are these practical farmers. Sure. So Practical Farmers of Iowa is a nonprofit based in Ames, Iowa, and our membership is made up of 2,800 farmers and friends of farmers, mostly located in Iowa, but we have members in 33 states. And um, we are trying to highlight the innovative farming practices that are happening in Iowa and the Midwest. So our farmers want to learn from each other, and we put on all kinds of programming, field days, on-farm research, and a large annual conference to facilitate farmer-to-farmer exchange of knowledge. So our mission is to get farmers to learn from each other, because we know that that is what works best for, for farmers. And as livestock coordinator, give us a sense, like, what's a what's a, a week in your life look like? What are, kind of problems are you dealing with? What are you troubleshooting? What's the kind of lay of the land? Sure. Uh, well, I work mostly with farmers that 
have transitioned a lot of their row crop land, their corn and bean land, into grasslands and native prairie for grazing ruminants. So I'm working a lot with uh, grazing programming and education. Uh, I also am currently working a lot with um, bird flu. A lot of media response is coming into PFI, uh, and we know that none of our farmer members have been infected with bird flu, even if they are within quarantine areas around large poultry operations that have been infected. So we're trying to highlight why this could be. And uh, what we're quickly realizing is that when birds are raised on pasture, they are have stronger immune systems and they're healthier animals and they're faring well during this epidemic of bird flu in Iowa. So let's talk about this this avian influenza. I mean, it's something I feel like I've been hearing a little bit at the periphery of um, kind of mainstream media and this kind of percolating thing of like, oh, there's this like sickness that's kind of happening that might affect egg prices. But can you give us a sense of, of what it is and, and how uh, would a producer know if maybe one of their birds or part of their flock had become infected? Sure, yeah. We know that avian influenza is a highly pathogenic flu strain that is rapidly spreading through these commercial bird flocks. Um, So at first, scientists were saying that it was spread by uh, wild birds, migratory birds, and now they're saying it could be spread in the air through ventilation ducts. Uh, and transmitted through clothing and the booties of workers in, in on these farms. And we no one has pinpointed yet what the actual cause and, and transmission is, but we we know that birds that are confined in in these large large buildings, are being affected at really rapid rates. And when one bird gets sick, it's federal protocol to then euthanize all of the birds if, if a bird in that flock has been tested, has tested positive for this highly pathogenic strain of avian influenza. And there's been many backyard flocks that have been tested especially these flocks that are within these quarantine zones, and they are coming back with, with negative test results, so they're not, not being affected. And some of these backyard flocks may have low pathogenic strains of, of bird flu, but, but their immune response is kicking in, and they're able to, to fare and, to, and still remain healthy in spite of of this highly pathogenic strain that's going around. And just to be clear, like when we're talking about an avian flu, I mean, can we extrapolate to um, kind of what we experience uh, as humans? Like there's a flu that some people get sick, some people don't, and each year the strain is a little different. Um, but any in any space where you have kind of a given population, 
like it's not so much that the flu is necessarily so out of sorts in a bird population, but that this particular strain of the flu is really wreaking havoc. Is that is that like a correct understanding, or like do, can we understand it the same way we understand, you know, the flu in human populations? Sure, we we know that the flu virus thrives in colder temperatures, so it can't survive in hot temperatures. And so that's why we're seeing a bit of a lull in infected birds right now because it's hot in Iowa, it's summer, and the the flu virus probably has, has died off. That doesn't mean that it's completely gone and we're preparing for a resurgence of the virus potentially when the weather drops again and we're, we've reached fall temperatures. So it's important to remain vigilant. Um, we're also, I, I'm also advising our members to just keep observing their flocks, keep them outdoors, keep them exposed to sunlight and fresh air, but observe them for increased mortality. And if if they do observe that, they can. There's a hotline to call and to report that right away. And I guess we should have uh, clarified this at the beginning, but are we talking about egg-laying chickens or meat birds? In Iowa, we have more egg-laying chickens, and we have a lot of egg-laying chickens in these concentrated animal operations, and that's where we've seen the the biggest widespread issues. We're also talking about turkeys. And I know that the response has been very great because nationwide we're trying to prevent the spread of this strain of avian influenza to the big broiler meat flocks in the mid-Atlantic in North Carolina and before it reaches the East Coast where there's more meat production on a large scale. So it's kind of making its way, or the, the, the thinking is that it's potentially making its way across the country. We haven't seen it spread much out of the Midwest at this point. It did originate in the Northwest uh, back in December and January, and then spread to Minnesota and Iowa. Um, but we haven't spread, seen it spread that much further east at this point. So that's why the response has been so great, because they're trying to m- mitigate the spread at, at, in any way possible. So you talked a little bit at the beginning of the show that there is some thinking that, you know, potentially this influenza is being brought, you know, or passed farm to farm by, by, you know, foot traffic, essentially someone walking around on one farm, picking up something on their shoes or their boots and, and bringing it to another farm. And I think when we think about the human flu, you know, the kind of prevention methods we're familiar with are kind of pretty basic, you know, wash your hands uh, lots, don't touch your eyes, don't sneeze. Um, what are, what are like the safety protocol for, for these chicken farmers um, if they're looking to kind of enhance the, the measures that they're practicing on their farm in light of, of this influenza outbreak, especially for folks who are right in the center of quarantine zones? How do they protect themselves? What are the tools that they have? So the biggest thing is to practice biosecurity, and that is to monitor who's coming onto your farm. Uh, don't let 
either don't let any visitors on your on your farm at this point or make sure they're wearing proper gear plastic booties and so on um, we know that a lot of our small-scale poultry producers who haven't been affected uh, a lot of media want to talk to them at this point and we're advising them to be interviewed off the farm somewhere just in case because you, you don't know where all of these vehicles have been they're saying it could the, the disease could come in on the tires of vehicles so really the biggest thing is to just kind of keep your farm closed know who's visiting your farm or uh, just just don't let anyone on the farm at, at this point but we're not recommending to put your birds indoors we really just think sunshine fresh air clean water and a really healthy ration feed ration is the most important thing for those birds and do you have a sense um well i guess two things first um maybe we should talk a little bit more about the poultry farmers who make up your your network so i believe you said you have 150 poultry farmers within your network can you give us a sense of the size of their flocks and then maybe orient us to how that compares with um other poultry producers in the state of iowa are the kind of practical farmers of iowa flocks um median size above or below that um, how do they kind of orient to the rest of the state sure i would guess that our practical farmer member flocks range from 20 birds to oh they might be producing 2,000 birds a year for both meat and egg production so very very small scale um compared to these large commercial operations that have at least 10,000 birds up to a couple million birds. And to date, we know that in Iowa, six backyard flocks have been affected with infected with bird flu, totaling about 4,700 birds. Um, and that is versus 77 operate, commercial operations have been infected, totaling 33.7 million birds. So it's just two completely different scales that we're dealing with. And and so I think you had mentioned this at the top of the show, that once a bird on um, any given property, any operation, large or small, is tested positive, the protocol is to euthanize the entire flock? That's right the entire 100% of the flock. Man. And then I would imagine there must be some quite intensive, um, you know, cleaning or um, other process that has to happen once you have flu on your property, Uh, especially if they don't know where it's coming from. Like, how do you know that it's gone and you can kind of bring birds back into your operation? Right. So that's when the hazmat team has to come in in full gear and depopulate your flock. Um, And there's been huge issues in Iowa with finding places to dispose of all the dead birds. So it's, uh, it's quite the scene and quite the mess here. It's, you know, painting like a pretty dark, 
picture. Um, also, just, um, you know, I think undergirding, like, how potentially vulnerable the food supply is. Um, but also, you know, if you are a small or medium-scale producer, like, your ability to absorb that type of loss must be very differentiated from a large-scale producer. I mean, I, I would guess, like, where, where you're kind of, like, set up to mitigate those risk factors, um, and thinking about these producers kind of being able to stay in business. Do you know um, uh, the larger scale egg productions? I'm assuming those are primarily contract growers? I believe so. Okay. Wow. Wow. All right. Well, so what do we do as consumers? Um, you know, obviously. Um, Folks, I'm sure, upon hearing the flu, must have, like, basic questions about, oh, will I get sick, or what do I do, or do I, do I have to worry about eggs, you know, here on the East Coast um, and across the country. I guess we can anticipate potentially seeing a rising egg prices, but um, how, do we, how do we kind of protect ourselves? How do we get engaged in this as consumers? Sure. I, I just talked to a farmer friend of mine this weekend who has 200 layers, and he said that he's done, he did the best he ever has at the farmer's market on Saturday and sold 40 dozen eggs, which is double what he usually sells. And we can't determine if that's directly because of the bird flu or not, but I think shoppers are weary of buying eggs in just your generic grocery store chain and maybe shopping at farmer's markets or seeking out uh, eggs produced on a smaller scale from farmers that they are familiar with and feel comfortable buying from. So really, I, I just want to highlight that um, these, these small-scale farms, they're, they're, they're resilient and they're they're seeing that their sales are actually growing in light of this of this big scare. I think I think this is the this is the push that's needed to for producers to realize the uh, grim consequences of of industrial animal production. Does diversity matter on the farm? Um, I mean, what are the what are the benefits of having a, a more diverse operation? Well, I'll say that most of our producers aren't just raising layers or broiler, broilers. They're probably raising poultry and also lots of other livestock enterprises. And and so, if they were to be affected with bird flu they could turn to their other enterprises for primary sources of income. So really, I just want to highlight diversity leads to resiliency, and, and small-scale, diverse livestock operations are, are really the, the farms that are going to fare during, during scares and epidemics like this in the future. Wow. Well, Megan, thank you so much for helping us kind of understand a little bit what's going on um, on the ground out there in Iowa and, and maybe what we can expect and think of for consumers. It is interesting to think about, um, I guess, the upside of, um, you know, crises in the food supply like this as creating an opportunity to reflect more generally on how we're producing and, and valuing food. So I definitely um, look forward to kind of staying in touch and following this issue with you. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Erin. If you want to find out more about the work they're doing, definitely check out www.practicalfarmers.com. 
org, and I guess I would suggest this weekend um, heading to your local market and, and talking eggs with your favorite farmer, finding out what's happening on their farm, how they're thinking about this, and um, what you should be thinking about. Stay tuned. Um, up next, we are going to have a second guest. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. Log on to escapemaker.com for more ideas on local weekend getaways and day trips, including orchards, farms, and wineries. Or come by Escape Maker's Yellow Tent in Grow NYC's Green Markets and pick up a guide to local agritourism escapes to the Green Market's own farmers and producers. The guide will be updated seasonally to feature farms, wineries, and destinations in New York City, New York State, New Jersey, Vermont, and Pennsylvania. Plus, Escape Maker will offer overnight packages to these destinations so you can get the full experience. No car? No problem. Escape Maker features plenty of ideas for car-free getaways, including discounts via Amtrak. There's no better time to explore outside the city. Soak up the fresh air and scenery like a butterfly and support your local farmer. Log on to escapemaker.com to get inspired and make your escape through the net. Hey, my name is Chris Kuzmi from Fermen About It. My favorite food is liquid bread, and you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org. All right, we are back, uh, bringing you in the second half of this conversation. Um, we are joined on the line by a producer from the region that we were chatting about with Megan uh, in the first half of the show. I want to welcome John Wasalius of the Cornucopia to the Farm Report. John, it's great to have you on. Oh, thank you. Did I say your last name right? Yes, you did. Ah, well, what a relief. <laughs> so you operate the, the Cornucopia, which is a diversified operation in, um, in the center of Iowa. Maybe if you want to give us a little bit of orientation to um, the type of agriculture that is uh, in your region and the type of agriculture that is happening at the Cornucopia. Well, the Cornucopia is a very small farm in the northwest corner of Iowa. It's about uh, 50 miles south of Sioux Falls, 40 miles north of Sioux City. It is um, six acres, which is a very small farm. We grow mostly vegetables. We try to finish 20 to 30 uh, heritage plays a year, and we try to grow... Uh, we'd like to grow 2,000 broilers again, uh, chicken broilers, for meat. 
and we keep about 100 hens. We are in Sioux County, which is one of the most productive counties for agriculture in Iowa, and um, we're surrounded by family farms that consist of corn, beans, soybeans, um, and uh, beef cattle, uh, pigs, and uh, a few dairy operations, and uh, poultry operations. There are uh, 36,000 people in our county, and um, there are many, many more animals in our county. We're very rural. So the, the people to animal, yeah. Well, that was I was surprised. So I was pulling up some census numbers from the um, twenty twelve census of agriculture, looking um, at at some information about Sioux County, but also the state of Iowa in general. So looking here, you know, the average size of a farm in the state of Iowa is three hundred forty five acres, and then in Sioux County. It's, you know, really close to that 299 acres. And you said you're operating on six acres. So I'm wondering, I mean, we hear a lot um, out here in Brooklyn and uh, about farmers kind of consistently getting pushed to kind of get big or or get out. So how have you managed to make it work on a six-acre operation in the midst of a, of a county where the average farm size is more in the 300-acre range? That's uh, kind of an interesting it's an interesting question, and it's also uh, somewhat information. The data can be manipulated. Uh, it depends on what you call farm. Okay, great. Because uh, people who own farmland, uh, who live in town, own a farm, and they rent out the land. So most people who are farming full-time are farming closer to 1,200 acres, not 300 acres. So I've read uh, the University of Iowa, University of Minnesota, uh, Extension Service. If you ask them how much land do you need for a viable farm, they'll probably say about 1,200 acres to support a father and a son or a two-person operation. So uh, what you have in that census data is farms, that, that those are pieces of land that are owned by families or individuals that are farmed. But many parcels make up one operation most often. Got uh, it. Okay. So, so numbers can be uh, used and manipulated and, and, and tossed around, you know. Um, we operate six acres. Uh, it's Basically, we do market gardening, direct-to-consumer farming. Um, we grow a lot of vegetables, and we sell them at farmer's markets. And we raise the chickens we raise are sold. Uh, the people place orders for their chickens, and we grow them, and people pick them up, or I might drop them off. And, uh, and the same thing with the pork. So we can do it because we're growing something that nobody else does. That nobody we're growing else vegetables and in a sea of corn. And because, you know, essentially where I can kind of, I could, I'm assuming I could pull up to your farm and, and walk away with stuff that I could go home that night and cook versus pulling up to another operation where there's probably a couple other steps in between what I could walk sure. away with. Right. If you drove up to my place today, you could drive away with parts of a pig, like pork chops or, or, or ham roasts or shoulder roasts, and you could drive away with a frozen whole chicken, and you could pick up, let's see, this morning we harvested kohlrabi, onions, cabbage, broccoli, cauliflower, peas, and green beans. Oh, now you're just making me hungry. <laughs> I'm good at making people hungry. <laughs> um, well, so... 
touching again on some of the census data, which maybe you can help clarify for us. One of the other things I was looking at for Sioux County is the amount of the volume of production for um, laying hens and for broilers. So just to give a little context to folks, according again, these are 2012 numbers. There was just over six million layers produced in the county. Um, in it, for that for that census year, and then broilers and other meat type chickens sold, they listed at like three and a half million. So, do those numbers kind of strike you as in in the range of what you're hearing or seeing? Oh yeah, yeah. So you had said you are you're looking at uh, an operation that has about two thousand. Um, I'm sorry, I can't remember if you said broilers or laying hens. During, during during the full season, I will grow. I will finish about two thousand broilers. At least I used to on a regular basis. See, one of the things, Aaron, that we run into for small micro farms like mine is access to processing when it comes to chicken, to any kind of meat. Really, there are still some butchers available for uh, inspected meat processing for pigs and beef cattle, but on a smaller scale. But for poultry, it's so. Uh, they're so set up for large-scale operations that it's very difficult to find a place to get your chickens butchered. And the place I was getting my chickens butchered at uh, closed two years ago. And so uh, I went from selling 2,400 birds in uh, what was it, 2012 or 2013. What, what year are we now? 2015. Okay. It was 2012 I sold 2,400 chickens. Then last year I sold 600. Uh, because I, I I didn't have a place to get them butchered. Get I'd have butchered. to butcher them on the farm, and I don't like the idea of butchering on the farm. Well, I, I mean, I have to imagine it's a whole other kind of operation and equipment setup, and it also takes a different, yeah, different skill set. Well, one of those things too that's like kind of disorienting when we're really thinking about. Um, food production is you live literally in a, a sea of millions of birds that are being processed um, and yet are, are unable to find processing for your operation because of the scale. And one of the things that I think has been interesting and, and that Megan kind of alluded to in the first half of the show when we're thinking about uh, um, scale and kind of the pluses and minuses of that, kind of bringing it back to the avian flu conversation. How, uh, I mean, how are you experiencing that? I mean, obviously you, you have not had an incidence of a uh, flu on your farm, but is that something that when you started hearing about it, maybe you can tell us a little bit how it kind of came onto your radar and what impacts it has or hasn't had on your operation? Well, I don't recall exactly when I first heard about it. Um, to me, uh, I visit my chickens every morning and every evening and uh, make sure they have clean bedding, adequate water, adequate feed, and I collect the eggs. And uh, when, you, when you collect the eggs, you pick them up and you put them in your collection, uh, in my case, a small bucket. And uh, uh, but if they feel right, you know, you want to have strong shells, you want to have a, a healthy chicken, that you, you, they look good, they, 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 uh, they, they behave like they're feeling well, uh, none of them have passed away in the last six months, uh, the shells are solid, so then, you know, you don't really think about, well, yeah, in the back of your head, you say, okay, they've got this going on, you hear about it on the news, uh, you don't want it to come here, uh, so you just... Uh, you don't visit other poultry places, and you just uh, keep your hands clean and hope that uh, things work out. Now, you know, you're feeding, in my case, organic feed. Uh, you hope that they get enough um, nutrients that they stay healthy. 
So it's not, I had not uh, heard about a small small operation, a backyard flock or a small farm flock being affected by uh, this flu. You know, when you have, uh, a, a, when, when someone in a very large daycare facility or a child in, in, in elementary school gets the flu, it, it spreads through the facility, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so when you put a lot of chickens in one place, uh, perhaps it's similar, you know. Um, so maybe smaller might be better sometimes. Well, and then, too, I'm wondering when you're kind of out and about in town, you know, picking up other groceries or going to the no, hardware Aaron, store, Aaron, there's, I, there's I no town. <laughs> <laughs> there's no groceries. Well, nothing like olive oil, lemon, salt and pepper? Uh, uh, detergent. Detergent, uh, okay. Detergent, toilet paper, razor blades, uh, shampoo, uh, paper towels, uh, rubber bands, and plastic bags for packaging vegetables. Yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty much it. Occasionally, <laughs> occasionally I, will, uh, I need gasoline and diesel fuel. And I, have a, I, I occasionally have beverages that might be a bad habit or, you know, uh, <laughs> get a loaf of bread once in a while. But, uh, no, grocery shopping, uh, uh, not so much. Well, I, I guess more what I, was, what I was getting to, when you're in, like, spots um, where you're interacting with different members from the community, I'm wondering if you can kind of talk a little bit about um, you know, how producers at different scales like yours and like a lot of the other farms um, in, in your county, um, you know, what's the, what's the vibe between you? Do they look at you like, what the heck are you doing? And do you look at them like, what the heck are you doing? Or is it convivial? Or what's the kind of community vibe? And, and I'm wondering, too, when you're operating at such different scales, um, I know that obviously you're a member of the um, – practical farmers group but are there other groups um that are they're ag oriented that you belong to where there's a wider kind of cross-section of producers just kind of trying to get a sense of of how the community space works that's a difficult question the only group i belong to is practical farmers of iowa and for the most part uh haven't seen anybody for the last three months, so uh, we haven't had a direct face-to-face conversation about, you know, the bird food. But I've found email listserv or, or uh, you know, messages via email. There's been a lot of concern about it spreading, how to prevent it from spreading, how do you notice it. Uh, you know, that's the number one thing. We have friends who have a small backyard flock, and, and um, they live very close to one of the larger facilities, so their backyard flock was tested. Uh, and um, and then the inspectors or the te- the, the, the people came and checked their place. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's handled in different jurisdictions in different ways. Recently, I was talking with a friend of mine who is in the poultry business in Ontario, Canada, in the province of Ontario, and they didn't send out inspectors. Nobody visited any farm. As soon as it appeared there, they threw... Uh, roadblocks across driveways to every poultry operation, and every poultry operator got a phone call and said, no visitors of any kind, nobody anywhere, any kind visits your place. So no inspector came, no testing person came, whereas here, uh, IDOL, the I Department of Agricultural and Land Services or Stewardship, and the uh, USDA sent people from acreage to acreage, from farmhouse to farm place, uh, 
checking to see if people had poultry and testing poultry to see if they had it. Um, different way of handling it. Mm-hmm. Uh, perhaps it's also spread. We had one family that had a backyard flock that was tested, and then after the people did the testing left, birds got sick. So, you know, anecdotally speaking. So, it's, you know, it's always kind of, kind of like, you know, for the most part, uh, people respect each other uh, for doing what they do. Right. And everybody does what they do, that what they enjoy to do, and do it the best that they can do it. And for some, that means, like myself, um, small scale, because um, I have six acres to work with. And so I pursue intense production on a small place. You could call it square foot farming, square foot gardening, uh, small plot intense is another phrase often used. Uh, other people have access to more land, uh, prefer to mechanize, automate, and use systems and structures that, that are, can be purchased or put in place that allow them to go for quantity uh, very rapidly in a, in a commodity business. Corn and soybeans are commodity business. I mean, the price of corn, corn is corn. It doesn't matter what, what, how you grow it, it's corn at the end of the day. Well, and Whereas where, we, can, we can assign different features to a tomato. It can be an heirloom. It can be a greenhouse tomato. It can be a hothouse tomato. It can be grown in the dirt tomato. It can be dry tomato. It can be a wet tomato. You know what I'm saying? And, too, I do want to make it clear for folks that you're not like a lone farmer with a hoe out there by yourself. I mean, you have a, you have a full-time summer crew that you manage. Um, things are pretty intense on your farm right now. Yes, they're very intense. I have six students, college students, every day from 7 o'clock to 5 o'clock, and they get an hour off for lunch so I can talk to you. <laughs> well, thank you for giving us a little bit of your lunch break. Um, one of the other things I wanted to touch on with the last couple minutes we have here is, and we had talked about this a little bit yesterday, but I want to talk about um, folks like 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 me and others in the media and kind of what we're getting right, what we're getting wrong. I know you had mentioned that you've received a couple of calls from folks interested in having you kind of comment or weigh in on the avian flu situation. Um, and I'm just curious, like from where you sit, what are the what are the stories that we are are, are getting right and wrong and, and kind of where where would you point our nose in the direction of supporting the type of work that you do or better telling that story? Well, the, the, the frustration, I suppose, is when people, uh, you know, you, you need to talk to the people who run those large facilities directly uh, first. And then in terms of small-scale poultry, it's so difficult because it's all economy of scale. You know, to to feed chickens in, at a small scale, if you have 100 or 200 or 300 laying hens and you feed them bag feed, they're going to eat $2 a feed to produce a dozen eggs. And then you'll still have to clean them and handle them and package them and market them. And you still have to raise the chicken from chick to mature status, which is about five months. So then you, you're feeding them for five months before, um, before they, you get a, an egg. And the large-scale producers um, are selling eggs for something like 65 cents a dozen a month ago or two months ago. And I think now their wholesale is up almost doubled because of their, a little bit of a shortage because 30-some million laying hens in Iowa are out of production. You know, it's more about access to the marketplace. I mean, what's happened over the last 100 years, especially in the last 50 years, is that people 
I don't think a person that's born today who grows up on a small farm can go out and say, hey, I want to be a chicken farmer. I want to be a, an egg, egg operation and, and do that for my income because to get into it today is so big. It's like a large capital investment. It's mind-boggling. Because I read online at the egg board, uh, the National Egg Board, 63 firms, 63 farms, or 63 companies produce 87% of the eggs consumed in America. Wow. You know, so you have very few producing the most. Mm-hmm. And we're putting all our... <clears throat> we're, <laughs> that's why uh, folks that I uh, read recently uh, a piece where they're talking about food security. You know, are we food secure? Does this avian flu... Is it a wake-up call that we have too many in one place? And the 40% of the nation's eggs almost, I think it's almost 40%, or is it 17%, but a large percentage of the nation's eggs are produced here in Iowa. Is it the right place? Could it be more spread out? And, and, and uh, that's, you know, and it's more spread out in terms of by more people, too. Yeah, well, and I think, too, you're yeah. pointing out some good questions for us to be, asking um what i'm curious and i'm and i and let me know if this is not something you can speak to but there was you know a a version basically of swine flu that came through the the region not you know i would say within the last like 16 to 24 months as well is that right well there was a ped v i call it ped v i I can't pronounce the words for the uh, abbreviation p-e-d and then v and basically diarrhea and baby pigs uh it was uh, a year and a half ago. It hit my place. I, I lost half of my baby pigs in two weeks. Um, great numbers of, of uh, baby pigs died because they got diarrhea and they couldn't figure it out. Um, they probably traveled on people's boots to the convenience stores because um, it was found in floor mats on gas station floors in South Dakota. So, you know, it's it, it, the pork industry, or I should say pig farming, has faced three or four large-scale epidemic-type disease issues over the last 30 years. And um, I have a guy who lives a mile from me who has phased out of producing pork. I mean, he he's a relatively, was a relatively small operator, and you know, what do you expect? You put so many pigs in one place, sooner or later, illness is going to catch somewhere and it's going to spread rapidly because you've got so many in one location. Wow. Well, John, I really appreciate you taking some time out of your lunch today to um, help us understand this issue a little bit more and to begin thinking about uh, what, what, what more we have to learn and to think about it. I really appreciate your insights. Thank you. Well, just we appreciate that opportunity and just think about where your food comes from. And like some people say, you know, try to shake the hand of the guy who grows your food. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, if folks want to learn more about John and his work, you can visit them online. It's the corn ucopia, csa.com. That's C O R N U C O P I A. That's the cornucopia csa.com. Also find them on Twitter at cornucopia csa. Hang tight. We are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will be on the line with our Escape Maker segment.
Brandon Hoy, co-owner of Roberta's, and you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org. All right. We are on the line with Elizabeth Ryan of Breezy Hill and Stone Ridge Orchards. Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Hi, Aaron. <laughs> so I know, I know we are not going to have enough time to go through the long list of all the amazing things that you guys have going on. Um, but I do want to um, try and cover as much as we can. But I have to start with something I saw on your website that I'm like dying to know more about. You have a degree in pomology? Yes. Good catch. What um, is that? And that, by the way, is spelled P-O-M-O-L-O-G-Y, not P-A-L-M. Some people think I'm a fortune teller. Oh, another good skill. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> Pomology is the study of fruit culture, and pom is the uh, you know French or Latin root word for uh, apple. But it actually encompasses all uh, fruit, all tree fruits, uh, small fruits, grapes, um, and uh, nut culture as well. So it was. Can you imagine how fun it was to study um, fruit for four years at Cornell? I have, I'm like, I, yeah, I mean, I feel like that could take you in so many different directions. I know <laughs> <So> many. <laughs> now you were one of the, um, kind of original green market farmers down here in New York city's green markets. Absolutely. I, I, I know you also, um, connected with the Smithsonian, uh, as a fellow chatting with them and sharing information about apples. I mean, I think it's pretty safe to say as a cider maker since is it 1980, Yep. That that you know a good apple. So tell me, how did you get into the apple, the apple business, uh, growing apples, making cider, thinking about it? Where where was the impetus? Well, some of it came from Cornell. I'm I'm from a long line of farmers. My mother's from a 
big Iowa farm that came from the Alsace and Bohemia, you know, 150 years ago and broke the sod, and we're still farming that farm. So, um, so I grew up around a lot of agriculture. I didn't grow up on the farm, but I spent every summer there. And I ended up at Cornell, and I discovered that you can actually get a degree in agriculture. Um, and I didn't want to be a kind of field crop grain, you know, farmer. I was also interested in a lot of um, serious questions about the quality of our food, how it's grown, um, how people are treated who grow it, um, farm workers and organics and sustainable agriculture. And I, I, I really um, started working in that area. Oh gosh, you know, 40 years ago, um, uh, I ran a sustainable ag project in um, 1975. So I'm dating myself in Washington. Um, uh, you know, left Cornell for a while to do that, and I fell in love with fruit. I mean, fruit, grapes, um, apples, peaches, plums. You know, it's just. It's it's something, uh, it's so sensual, so beautiful, and the experience of getting to grow fruit is, even in the worst of years, for me, it's magic. It's like living in the Garden of Eden, and so that's why I grow fruit. Well, and you had mentioned that um, this is going to be a really, fingers crossed, knocking on wood, uh, a really yes, great year yes, for... Yes, yes. Folks in the orchard space, what does that look like? Why do you think that this year's looking so good? Well, you know, fruit fruit is perennial crops. It's it's completely different. It, it's you know, I'll just talk about tree fruit. It takes five years before a tree typically will even bear fruit, um, and you know, you can get wiped out in five minutes. Uh, if it's too cold or or you have hail or a hurricane, fruit is very vulnerable. So it takes a lot to go into um, producing an apple. It really takes, it's a two-year cycle from the bud being formed to actually picking. It's not even one year. It's a two-year cycle. So if you have a really cold winter or a really cold spring or you have hail or you have a tornado or, you know, a whole bunch of things, and I'm not even talking about insects or 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 any any of the other issues um so when you're really lucky for for a lot of years the hudson valley uh was kind of a sweet spot we have like the perfect climate we have beautiful soils we have a great terroir we have uh something that the growers call aspect we have wonderful hills facing the right direction that get the right sun and um we have a long history of growing highly flavored beautiful fruit going back 300 years. Um, and I think a lot of us felt like we could take that for granted for a long time, but the last in the last 10 years we've had extreme, insane, deranged weather. And, you know, it's one thing if you live in New York and it's a pain in the neck because you're walking down the street and it's windy or it's raining. It's something else if you're a fruit grower and your entire crop is ripped off the tree in 10 minutes. Yeah. Um, when we had a Hurricane Sandy, we lost a thousand trees. They were snapped off at the base. Wow. That's extreme. But those kinds of things, you know, were pretty unheard of for a long time. So this year, we just, last year we had a weak year. The year before, um, we had a weak year. Um, and it doesn't mean you don't see fruit. It just means there's a lot less of it. Or maybe you, you know, people, 
you know, we had a couple of years where we barely had a cherry crop. We barely had a peach crop. So this year, as we say, the gods were smiling. And for some reason, the forces that make a beautiful crop, the right combination of, of, of temperature and the winter has all come together. Pollination, um, we, we, we depend on, on bees, uh, and wild pollinators for the crop to actually be pollinated. If we have a really bad year or we don't have bees, we're not going to have a crop. If it's raining all through a bloom, the bees aren't even going to fly. So there are a lot of factors that go into making this work. And so when you get a year like this, it's like a sweet spot where everything comes together. You're really find yourself as a grower in the place of, you know, oh my God, knock on wood, I'm feeling really lucky this year. And, um, you know, there's a lot also that goes into um, choosing what to grow, what varieties. I grow a lot of heirloom varieties. I, I'm, I'm always looking for flavor. I'm, I'm looking for, you know, some acidity, some robustness, some, um, you know, some punch to the fruit. I personally, you know, you can pay me to eat a red delicious. And, um, you know, we grow a lot of wine saps and russets and spies. And we've also planted a number of, um, of, uh, um, European cider apples that are just starting to bear, and we also have a Spitzenberg and um, some of the great old American apples that aren't growing too much um, anymore. So lots uh, of stuff so, happening at the farm. Yeah, I'm lot, like, yeah. Well, I want to um, I want to talk a little bit about some ways that people can kind of get up and interact with you guys. But before we get there, I have one more kind of burning question from. Um, okay. <laughs> I want to know. I saw also on your site that you grow Arctic kiwis and i was so curious i didn't know that you could grow kiwis in this area and then i thought maybe it's a different kind of thing okay so this is kind of embarrassing because we do grow them but they don't fruit very well so we have this humongous beautiful when you drive into stone ridge orchard and you drive into the orchard you see this beautiful um shrub-like um planting uh and we are very interested in permaculture and non-traditional crops. But that's a good example. We can grow them, but we haven't had a lot of luck fruiting them. There are a lot of hardy kiwis. They look more like a gooseberry than a, than a, than the kiwi you see in the store. And there was a very famous breeder in New Hampshire, Dr. Meader, and he was famous for growing kiwis in New Hampshire and a bunch of other interesting things. So they can be grown, but, um, but it, but not that easily. <laughs> so um, I don't think it's going to be a kiwi. It's here. not going to be. So we shouldn't be. We're not. Well, anyway, we're not rushing up to uh, Breezy Hill or Stone Ridge Orchards for the kiwis. We're coming for the apples. We're coming from the cider. But w- w- you know, what is the best way for folks to kind of connect with you? Obviously, here if you're in the city so at the green market, opening, but yeah, we sell at the farmers markets. We sell at you know Union Square and Inwood and um, a bunch of others. Um, we sell in a bunch of local markets, but Stone Ridge Orchard, which is up uh, near New Paltz, um, incredibly beautiful, um, 300-year-old farm that was slated for demolition. Um, and um, uh, that farm, they were going to build uh, 400 condos and a new strip mall. Because um, we need those so, so badly. Think, yeah, we need, we, need more, we need more of them, especially in the middle of a beautiful orchard. So... 
Um, it took four years. I raised the money to buy the orchard. I'm now protecting it. Um, we're putting easements on it, and we're building a tasting room. It's open for you pick, and um, we're opening Fourth of July weekend. Um, and it will be open at least on the weekends all summer and then seven days a week in the fall. And people can come and taste cider, buy cider, frolic in the orchard. We have this massive 250-year-old tree at the center of the orchard. It's it's kind of a famous gathering spot. And we do a lot of community events there. Um, the Roundout Valley Growers Association is having their big party. Wild Earth have their big party. We've had um, a Hudson Valley version of the Common Ground celebration there for a few years. So, you know, some cool events. And um, it's big. It's literally a mile long. So people can kind of romp around, bring their dogs. Um, you can't do that everywhere. Uh, hike and um, drink hard cider. And we'll have our wood-fired pizza oven. You guys know all about wood-fired pizza. So we, too, have a wood-fired pizza oven. Oh man, um, sounds like a like a perfect a perfect way to spend uh, a weekend. Well, Elizabeth, sadly we are out of time, but thank you so much for jumping on to give us a little a little bit of an update. I know folks can find you at Hudson Valley Farmhouse Cider dot com. Any other yeah. resources we should direct people to? Well, Stone, Stone Ridge Orchard dot com is dedicated just for Stone Ridge Orchard, so that's a, another another good website. Um, we're the real deal. We're real farmers. We're not the most kind of um, social media folks in the world yet, um, but here's hoping. Um, and uh, um, those are both good ways to find us. Thank you, Erin, for including us, and we love Heritage Radio. All right. Well, I can't think of a better way to go out than that. Um, thank you, of course, to our show sponsors, Escape Makers. Definitely check them out, escapemaker.com, for great ideas um, like Breezy Hill and Stone Ridge Orchards and more. Um, tons of good info on that site. What a jam-packed show. Thank you so much for listening. Um, really appreciate you tuning in. If you like what you hear, it definitely helps a ton. If you subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher, don't be shy. Leave us a, leave us a note in the comment section. We'd love to hear what you think. It also really helps people find the show. It makes a difference. Please uh, take a moment if you're so inclined. This program, like all 39 of our weekly shows, is available for free. That's right. Um, check us out, iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Visit our website. Stay tuned. We'll have a new website in September. I cannot wait. Thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned in. listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org you can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the itunes store by searching heritage radio network you can like us on facebook and follow us on twitter at heritage underscore radio you can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org heritage radio network is a 501c3 non to donate and become a member visit our website today thanks for listening